you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 29 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now, let's dig into history. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for your prayers for me, my family, and my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. We appreciate your prayers so, so much. Well, Proverbs 18.13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Particularly with this episode, episode 29, I want to encourage you to put this verse into practice. Today, we will be looking at the subject of biblical giving. How does the Bible define tithing? Did the early Christians teach tithing? And what does giving God's way actually look like? All these questions and more will be covered in today's show. Now, by way of housekeeping, at the end of every episode of Reclaiming the Faith, I include an original song, and I pray those songs have been a blessing to you. A few months ago, I began recording a seven-song EP of original songs that I've written over the last five years. Now, this can be quite a costly endeavor. So to help cover the cost of production, I've created a GoFundMe campaign. And for those of you who contribute $20, you'll receive a hard copy of the seven-song EP, plus a demo CD of acoustic versions of five additional songs. And for those who contribute $30 or more, in addition to the EP and demo, I will include a copy of my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And thank you all so much for your support with that already, because uh, I'm already uh, about halfway there. Now, if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. My book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, can be found on Amazon. Uh, both Kindle and hard copy versions. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave me an honest review there. Like I said earlier, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. You can contact BDK at omegafrequency.com and you can send in questions for that Q&A show there. In addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at fourthwatchradio.com or on the Fourth Watch Radio podcast. And finally, the early Christian quotes I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can purchase your copy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, well, let's get to episode 29, Giving God's Way. The whole purpose of this channel, Reclaiming the Faith, is to bring to light 
what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues that face us today. And the reason is, the earliest Christians' writings, the earliest ones, the pre-Constantinian Christian writings, are generally not taught to Christians. One way to think about these writings are, these are the earliest commentaries on what the apostles taught. And that's so important because so many people have so many opinions about all of these issues that are taught in church. And I've shared with you how when I began to read the earliest Christian writings, it was a grieving process for me because I had already been in ministry for a long time and many of the things that I was teaching were not what they taught. And one of those areas is something new that I've been discovering from the earliest Christians' writings, which is the subject of tithing and giving. And so today, I want to encourage you to listen very carefully to what they believed about tithing and the biblical basis for those beliefs. And I want to encourage you to be brave as you listen Be courageous because you may need to change what you believe as well. So first, we're going to start by defining biblically what tithing is. I'm not going to give you opinions. We're just going to give black and white definitions for the issue of tithing. But before I do that, I do want to share a small story. When I was 20, I began to be discipled by a man who took me under his wing. And this man uh, asked me a question one day. He said, uh, Philip, do you tithe? And I said, well, not exactly. And he said, let me share with you a passage. It's Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. And it tells us to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse um, and to test God in this and that if we tithe, God is going to cause our storehouses to like overflow. So God's going to be very generous. And, you know, I took him at his word and I began to give 10% of my money from that point forward. And uh, my wife and I give more than 10% uh, now away to to various uh, ministries. And, uh, you know, we've we've never hurt for money. God has been very faithful in blessing us and taking care of us. But were we called, are we called to give 10% of our income to the local church? That's what we're going to talk about today. This is tithing. In the Old Testament, a tenth of the production of the crops grown in the land of Israel, as well as livestock that fed off the land, was supposed to be tithed, according to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30 and 32. Now, the tithe was not based on income, which would be like wages or money received, within Israel's economy. Wages earned by artisans, such as carpenters, masons, potters, fishermen, etc., were not subject to the tithe required by Mosaic law. So... Jesus, if he was a carpenter or a mason, did not tithe. And by mason, of course, I mean stonemason, not freemason. <laughs> and his disciples, uh, Andrew, 
Peter, James, and John as fishermen also were exempt from tithing. Now, there are three main types of tithes in the Old Testament. First are the Levitical tithes, which you can find in Numbers 18, 21 through 32, Malachi 3, verse 10 through 12. Then there's the festival tithes, which you can find in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 27, and charity tithes, which you would find in, also in Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 through 29. Let's start with the Levitical tithes. The Levitical tithes were a tithe that happened yearly, and it provided sustenance for the Levites who served in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And this allowed the Levites to tithe to the priests. All right, now this is 10% annually of the production of crops grown in the land and the livestock that fed off the land, but it was not money. The festival tithe also happened yearly. It was taken three times a year to the place that the Lord chose to make his name dwell there, which was first Shiloh and then Jerusalem. And this happened during the three main festivals that all Jewish males were supposed to attend. That would be Passover and uh, Shavuot, which would be Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, and then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. The charity tithe happened every three years. Now, these were tithes that were collected and shared in the community among the Levites, as well as the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who were within your town so that they could eat and be filled. So let's break this down. The Levitical and festival tithes happen annually. In year one, you're going to see this tithing cycle. In year one, you would give 20% of the produce of your land and the livestock that fed off the land to the Levitical and festival tithes. Year two, same thing, 20% to the Levitical and festival tithes. In year three, you'd give now 30% of the uh, produce of your land and the animals that fed off your land because you have all three tithes going. You have the Levitical, festival, and charity. Year two, back to just the Levitical and festival with 20%. Year five, sorry, that was year four. Year five, again, just 20% with the Levitical and festival tithes. And in year six, you're back to the 30% Levitical, festival, and charity tithes. But guess what? There's a seventh year in this cycle. And in the seventh year, they were commanded to not tithe because they were commanded to let the land rest. This is the sabbatical year or the Sabbath year. The land is observing a Sabbath. So no tithe in the seventh year. So that's Old Testament tithing. What does that look like for New Testament believers in Jesus? Well, remember, the tithes went to the Levites who would then tithe to the priests. But who are the Levites in the New Testament? New Testament believers, who are the Levites? Some people might argue these are people on church staffs, but where is that in the Bible? And the Levites tied to the priests. Well, who are the priests? Are those the head pastors in the churches? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, is a passage championed by Protestants. 
It says, but you are a chosen race, speaking to believers scattered throughout the world. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So according to the New Testament, guess who are the priests? Well, everyone who's in Christ Jesus is a priest. And where were these tithes brought? They were brought to the temple in Jerusalem. But what does the New Testament say about God's temple? Well, you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus actually calls himself the temple of God. He uses a term, naos, in the Greek, which is the holy of holies. So Jesus is God's temple. But it goes further than that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that if you're in Christ Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, and therefore you have become the naos of God. You have become the temple, the holiest place in the temple. And that's plural, by the way. So all Christians. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes it individual. He makes it singular. He says, each one of us as spirit-filled Christians have become the holiest place on earth. We are the naos of God. And one of the things that you begin to understand through that is that it is literally, literally impossible to practice biblical tithing. Because who are the priests? We are. Who are the Levites? I don't know. Where is the temple? Right where you're sitting. Do you tithe to yourself then? And remember, it was not money. It was not money. So the tithes were actually only required by farmers and people that raised livestock. It wasn't money. And if carpenters and masons didn't tithe, then Jesus didn't tithe. Very interesting stuff. Well, the earliest Christians, they knew all of this. And the apostles knew this. So the apostles never talked about tithing. They did write quite extensively, though, about radical generosity. As Acts chapter 2, verse 42 states, the disciples of the apostles were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And that is exactly what we see with the writings of the early Christians. So let me give you a few. Let's start with Justin Martyr. How did the earliest Christians practice tithing? This is Justin Martyr in 160. He says, The wealthy among us help the needy. As for the persons who are prosperous and are willing, they give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president who gives aid to the orphans and widows. Notice the radical generosity, and yet it's not under compulsion. They give whatever they want, whatever they think is fit. They give it to the one presiding over the meeting 
who does not keep it for himself, but rather gives the money to aid orphans and widows. This is Tertullian in 197. He says, speaking of meetings, though we have our treasure chest, like an offering collection, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. So people are not giving money in order to get something or to have status, but rather on the monthly day, if he likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it is his pleasure and only if he is able, for there is no compulsion. All is voluntary. These gifts are to support and bury poor people, to supply the needs of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons now confined to the house. These gifts also help those who have suffered shipwreck, like literal shipwreck. And if there is If there happens to be any of us in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons, our compassions spend more in the streets than yours does in the temple. Notice that. It's pretty interesting. He makes a contrast between Christians and the pagans. He says the pagans collect money to make immaculate temples. But the Christian's money goes to lifting up the needy, and it's not compulsory, and it's not every week. Very interesting. So why is the vast majority of their money going to the poor? That's one thing to think about. And Why are there no temples? Why is there no staff to pay? Well, it's interesting that the way we give actually has its origin post-Constantine. You see, Emperor Constantine was a pagan emperor at the end of the, or sorry, at the beginning of the fourth century. And in 313, he signed something called the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. Did not become the religion of the Roman Empire. That didn't happen until 380 with Emperor Theodosius. But in 313, Christianity became legal. And Constantine began to tax the entire empire. Constantine... He became friends with many of the bishops, and he put them basically on Rome's payroll. So pagan citizens' money and Christians' money began to line the pockets of preferred bishops who would speak. And he also used that tax money to turn the pagan temples into Christian cathedrals. That was a completely novel uh, situation in Christianity because up until then, the largest churches were in houses that held maybe 70 to 100 people, the largest ones. And they were very simple. And yet now, everything changed. You had to pay 
for your Christianity now. So how can we sum up the early Christian understanding of tithing? Let me put it to you like this. Think about Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes and he says he has not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. One way to think about that is to bring the word fulfill is to bring it to its completion, to bring something to its completion. But from a Hebrew perspective, rabbis who interpreted the law correctly were said to have fulfilled the law. And rabbis who misinterpreted the law were said to have abolished it. And you see Jesus, therefore, correctly interpret the law in Matthew 5, as he says, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, anyone who harbors hatred in his heart towards brother has already committed murder in his heart. He says, you've heard it say, there, you, know, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, I say to you, he who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery, adultery in his heart. He uses the same approach with the matter of taking oaths or pledging allegiance. And he also talks about giving. Giving. You see, Jesus would say, oh, you've never committed murder? Good for you. But have you hated people? He goes above and beyond the law. He gets down to the heart of the matter. And Irenaeus, who was a bishop of Lyon around 180, concurs with this. Very well-respected bishop. And he says this, For the law, since it was laid down to those in bondage, used to instruct the soul, that man might learn to serve God. But the word, capital W, set free the soul, that the bonds of slavery should be removed, to which man had now become accustomed, and that he should follow God without fetters, without chains. Moreover, that the laws of liberty should be extended and subjection to the king increased. He's saying Jesus has come to actually make it more difficult to follow God, because he shows us what's really on God's heart when he said, don't murder. He shows us what's really on God's heart when he says, don't commit adultery. And when he says, give. Irenaeus continues. And for this reason, did the Lord, instead of that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, forbid even the thought. And instead of that which runs thus, thou shalt not kill, he prohibited anger. And instead of the law enjoining the giving of tithes, he told us, to share all our possessions with the poor, and not to love our neighbors only, but even our enemies, and not merely to be liberal givers and bestowers, but even that we should present a gratuitous gift to those who take away our goods. For, quote, to him that taketh away the coat, he says, quote, give to him thy cloak also, and from him that taketh away thy goods, Ask them not again. Don't ask for them back. And as you would have men do unto you, do to them as well, so that we may not grieve as those who are unwilling to be defrauded, but may rejoice as those who have given willingly, and as rather conferring a favor upon our neighbors than yielding to necessity. And if anyone, he says, shall compel thee to go one mile with him, go two. Go two. 
so that you may not follow him as a slave, but may as a free man go before him, showing yourself in all things kindly disposed and useful to your neighbor, not regarding their evil intentions, but performing your kind offices, assimilating yourself to the Father, who makes his sun shine upon the evil and the good, and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. And now all these precepts, as I have already observed, were not the injunctions of one doing away with the law, but of one fulfilling, extending, and widening it among us, just as if one should say that the more extensive operation of liberty implies that a more complete subjection and affection toward our liberator had been implanted within us. Mm. But someone might say, hey, what if Jesus taught tithing? What then? What if Jesus commanded us to tithe? Shouldn't we tithe? Well, the response to that is that context is king. We're supposed to interpret everything within its context. Just like someone could say, hey, in Matthew 5, Jesus said this, and I quote, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's actually in Matthew 5. But the context is, is Jesus saying that people have misinterpreted the law of love your neighbor? <laughs> he says, you have heard it say, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we got to take things within context. Let's look quickly at Jesus talking about tithing in Matthew 23, verse 23, as he writes to the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who had a habit of creating traditions that allowed them to not keep the real commands of God. And he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, what's interesting there is that people in the Old Testament were not commanded to tithe mint, dill, and cumin. So these Pharisees were actually going beyond what was commanded to look good in the eyes of others. But they were doing those types of giving, that type of giving, without doing the giving that God really requires, which is more of the whole self imitating him in his generosity because he gives to the evil and the good. And we are all destitute. We are all beggars at the foot of God's door. And so like God, we are called to do justice. This word Sadiq in the Hebrew, which implies taking care of those who can't take care of themselves, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners, the sojourners, these people doing mercy. And so Jesus says that we are to, yes, we are to do love, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And he says, yeah, I mean, you, you can give mint, dill, and cumin as well. Let's look at that first part of what he's talking about in terms of the justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In James 1, James, in verse 27, James says that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You want to practice giving in a religious way? Give to the orphans and the widows. That, that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But it it doesn't stop there. Remember, Jesus said, yeah, you should have tied those unnecessary things. Like, you should be giving those things away. Now, why would he say that? Well, look at Luke 14 in verse 31. Jesus tells a parable about discipleship and about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. He says this, What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the one is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Very interesting He says, basically, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to come under his rule, you can't keep anything back. He has to have all of it. He's not asking for 10% in order to be right with him. You have to give him 100%. Now, does that go to the church? Well, is the church the temple of God? Interesting questions to think about. Individually, I want to ask you this. Does God have all of your money? Individually, you as a person, does God have control of all of your money? Or are you just tipping him? Corporately, if you're in ministry, does God have all of your church's money? This is another very interesting question to ponder. You know, most American churches give less than 5% of their budget to helping the poor and needy around the world. This is probably the most ironic and maddening aspect of the tithe being taught in American Christianity. We are asked to give 10% of our income to the local church, who then gives less than 10% of their income to helping the poor in the world, the very thing that the tithe in the Old Testament was designed to do, to help those who could not help themselves. And yet the churches don't practice what they demand. So does the majority of our budget go to ourselves as Christian churches? Does it go to ourselves, the majority of it, or does it go to the majority go to lifting up the poor? You know, we cannot serve two masters. I spent many years as a pastor of my own church, and I taught tithing because that's the lens that I had been taught to see the Bible through. And yet over the last couple of years, God has really been working on my heart in this issue, confronting me with the truth of Scripture and calling me to change, to change what I believe and to change what I teach. And that's a scary thing because I'm actually employed by a church. But we cannot be scared of the truth. 
We have to trust in the truth. We have to trust in Jesus's way and not the traditions of men. But, you know, this is not new information. It's just dangerous information if our trust is in worldly things. So where is our trust? Do we trust God enough to love our neighbors as ourselves? You know, usually the first cuts to the budget is in missions. Giving money to people who cannot and will not ever give it back to us or help us back. And that's exactly what Jesus is, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't give to those who will give back to you, because if you do, you already have your reward in full. And that's what the, the pagans do. They give to people that will give back to them. But he says, no, you give to those who cannot give back to you, just like your heavenly father. What could we give to God that God hasn't first given us, as Paul would say in Romans 11? Now, I really want to encourage you, is your treasure on earth or in heaven? Do we spend more on earthly things or heavenly things? Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. I know that teaching the scriptures can be dangerous. I know that. But I would rather be in line with the truth of scriptures and suffer for it than gain the whole world and lose my soul. You know, we should teach about giving. We should talk and teach about radical generosity. But we must be so careful to not use giving, a traditional approach to giving, as a means of keeping people away from the love of money. We should not teach against the love of money because of a love for money. My parents go to a church with several thousand members, and they told me a story recently that I was so moved by. Their pastor recently addressed the congregation, longtime pastor, a couple decades, and he said to them, it is true that the Bible, the New Testament, the New Testament does not teach tithing. He said, I know that might shock many of you, but it's true. It does not teach tithing. Yet, we have bills to pay. We, we have many programs that y'all enjoy. And if you want to see these programs continue, we need y'all to give. We need y'all to be generous. And, you know, when I heard that, I just, I laughed. I was, and I was so proud of that pastor because he was straight up and honest with his people. He was honest about the state of their giving, and he was also honest about what the Bible actually says, so he's not laying the people down with unnecessary guilt. And I just want to encourage you, just like my uh, parents' pastor, the early Christians did not teach tithing, and they did not tithe, and yet they were way more generous than Old Testament believers in God, and they therefore are way more generous. The early Christians were way more generous than we are today.
So I really want to encourage you. May we reclaim and restore giving God's way. God bless you. I'll be there when you close your eyes. Don't you worry about a thing. I'll be there through the darkest night. When you rise to face the day. In your trials and in your tragedies. I'll be with you through it all. So rest your head here in your Father's arms. Even when it's pouring down, when the waters start to rise, even when you're numb with doubt, when you can't believe your eyes, no amount of pain could ever change faithfulness and love so rest your head here in your father's arms and all the lies that you believe like you're in this fight alone but how could I forsake or leave one chosen as my own you are a treasure in a field that I nothing left and all your strength is gone I'll be there with your final breath I'll be there to take you home what a day it's gonna be when you will know just as you know but until then rest in your father's arms Rest your head here in your father's arms.